after the Mosaic Covenant. We read from Deuteronomy, the second giving of the covenant, last time that we um, were delving into the Mosaic Covenant, we read from Exodus 19, we read a little bit from Deuteronomy 29, so several different places. Obviously, the Mosaic Covenant covers a lot of real estate in your Old Testament, and so we won't be restricted to one particular passage this morning, but are more overlooking the, the covenant as, as a whole. Uh, there is a handout. Uh, if you did not already get one, just let John know that. Just wave him down and he'll be able to get you a, a handout. You may remember from our from two weeks ago when we were considering... Now, let's just back up just for a second. We're, we're understanding we're in this series on the covenants. And we said at the outset that the understanding the covenants is really key for us in understanding the whole of the Old Testament and in, and in many senses understanding the whole of the Bible. Because these are the structures, these are the pillars that, that serve as foundational um, aspects of God's dealing with mankind. And so in the Old Testament, we see the, the basics laid out in the covenants and that much of our Old Testament and even our New Testament flows out of those covenants. Large portions of our Old Testament are covenant material. And so as we think about this relationship this relationship of commitment that exists with the covenants, we understand better God's dealing with men, we become better students of the Bible, and perhaps most importantly, we better understand the character of a covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps His promises. And what a beautiful thing it is as we see those promises unfold in the pages of Scripture. Furthermore, much of the covenants reach their ultimate and final commitment, their their, uh, fruition, in the person of Jesus Christ. The, The best of the covenants are seen in Christ. And so as we see the covenants, we must be quick to have our eyes open for how this covenant relates to Jesus who really is the hero of the entire story of God's redemption of man. So that's, that's the context for the series overall. Specifically, a couple weeks ago and then again this week, we've looked at the Mosaic Covenant. And we were reminded that God gives His people commands for His glory and our good. God gives His people commands for His glory and our good. This was true of the commands that He gave to Israel as He laid out this covenant for them through Moses. That's, of course, why it's called the Mosaic Covenant, because He was the human spokesperson. He was the mouthpiece of God in respect to this covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is God giving commands to His chosen people, Israel, for their good and His glory in the earth. But the same thing can be said of us today. God still requires things of His people. He tells them to do some things and not to do other things. 
And although we are tempted to think of those commands as restrictive, as imposing, as keeping me from what I really want to do, no, in actuality, they are the fruit of God's care for his people and God's passion for his own glory in the earth. And so what was true of Israel is true of us as well, that God gives his people commands for his glory and our good. We started with understanding the purpose of the covenant. We saw that the, perp the covenant, first of all, um, so all of this is in the context of God laying, setting aside a specific people for himself in the earth. And then by doing so, it shows man his moral distance from God. The, the, the Mosaic law gives us a glimpse into how, fall, how far short we fall of God's ideal. It shows man his moral distance from God. And, and then this is what the New Testament writers affirm, right? Romans 3, Paul actually uses the law as an argument to demonstrate how far we are from God. That every mouth would be stopped and the world may become guilty before God, Paul says in Romans 3. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. So it shows that moral distance and then it shows our mediatorial need. That, that's a big fancy way of saying that we need someone as a go-between. We need an attorney to stand before the judge of the universe on our behalf. We need, simply put, a savior who can stand in our stead. All right? If simply, we, we, we've, we recited, if, if simply hearing the law was such a frightening experience, how much more frightening would it be to stand before the lawgiver after having violated the law? And so the second function of the law is to show us our need, really our need for Christ. It also points man to abundant life. And this goes back to the timeless truth that we said at the beginning that God gives his people commands for his glory and our good. The path of the law reminds us that God has our good and His glory at heart. Now, we also quickly reminded ourselves that the law is not for justification. The Scripture is abundantly clear on this score. The law does not have a saving power. It points us to the gospel. It points us to our need for a Savior. It, it even instructs us about our, our, the reason that we need a Savior because we are so far short of God's righteous standard, but it does not save. It points to the one who saves. And so as we consider, continue to consider the law that God gives His people commands for His glory and our good, we under, need to understand the law in its appropriate context. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, we know that the law is good. And we're going to actually focus on the goodness of the law here under the next point. But, but he says the law is good if it is, if it is used lawfully, if it is used rightly, if it is used appropriately. So what is it then to use the law 
appropriately. Well, I want us to understand that the law is a unified whole, that the Mosaic covenant is a, is a singular agreement between two parties. There are numerous laws, if we want to count them, in the Mosaic Covenant, but in reality there is only one law. Now, you may have heard it said in the past that, that, the, that the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, can be divided up into a few different categories. And it's very popular to say, well, within the Mosaic Law, there's the civil law, there's the ceremonial law, and then there's the moral law. And, and probably if you've grown up in Christian circles, at some point you've encountered this notion that there are, there are three kind of divisions to the Mosaic Law. The civil law, which governs... Um, you know, God's people, Israel, in a kind of a governmental sense. The, uh, the, the, the laws of, of how they do things in their system of government. And this is very logical, right? I mean, there's some things that we can see very clearly in the Mosaic Law that, that by all, uh, it's apparent that it was designed to help them function, their government to function, if you want to look at it that way. There's also um, what was often referred to as the ceremonial law. Uh, that which relates to how they worship. And there are some things that are very clearly related to the, the worship of God and how that works. And then there are also clearly some moral principles that actually transcend the Mosaic Law. We see them before the Mosaic Law came along. We continue to see them after the Mosaic Law. So, so this is logical, is it not? And so these distinctions can be helpful, but here's the problem. These divisions are really rather arbitrary. Um, and in fact, God himself, the, the text itself, doesn't lay out this division anywhere. I mean, your Bible doesn't come, well, maybe yours does, but my Bible doesn't come with some sort of a highlighting system that reveals, you know, this is a moral law, and this is a ceremonial law, or, you know, you go to the book of Exodus, and you see the ceremonial laws, and then you go to the book of Leviticus, and you see the, the civil laws. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. There's no division that is given in Scripture, and so it becomes very difficult then. Who gets to decide which is civil, and which is ceremonial, and which is moral? And so I think from a logical point of view, it might help us to think in those categories, but understand that's not something that's revealed to us in the text of scriptures. It's not always easy to categorize them. For example, how many of you marked the Sabbath yesterday? Yet the Ten Commandments are... Moral law, right? By this popular division. And in fact, the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant. So shame on you, all of you, for not observing the Sabbath yesterday. The moral law is seen in the civil law. Uh, it, it is res given respect. Think about the responsibility of children to parents. And even how that was built into their civil system, yet 
we would say it's a time-honored truth that children should honor and obey parents. So this really is a singular law. It is one law. The Old Testament word Torah, law, is used in the singular. And it's not just in the Old Testament. When you come into the New Testament, the Greek word namos, when it refers to the Mosaic law, is used in the singular, even though we could say there are 613 laws. It's treated in the singular, and that is because it is one law. It is part of a covenant that God has established with his people. This is what James argues in James 2 when he says, Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. James is saying you cannot break apart the law. You cannot just take one part of it and act as if you are under this covenant because you keep one part of it. In fact, Paul argues the case in Galatians 5 that if you subscribe to circumcision as a requirement, right? This is exactly what he's arguing against, that, that circumcision is required. Right? The, the, the Judaizers, the, the legalists were saying this is required. Paul argues in Galatians that if a man becomes circumcised, he becomes a debtor to the whole law. You can't just, it's not a smorgasbord, right? He's saying you can't just go and take the pieces that you want. The law is a cohesive unit. It is one law. And so submission to its requirements can't be selective. So how then is the law to be understood? How is it to be applied to God's people today? Well, if the law is one unit, and we acknowledge readily, I think most people acknowledge readily, that there are parts of the law that are still no longer in force, then what about the remaining parts? Well, I think it's important for us to understand the setting of the law. We often emphasize that context matters when we understand the Bible. Have you ever debated with a scoffer? Have you ever gotten in a conversation with someone who does not believe the scriptures? When, when a scoffer, a, 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 a skeptic, argues against us, if they know a little bit about the Bible, they will sometimes try to use the Bible itself against Christianity, will they not? And more often than not, to what section of Scripture do they run when it's time to argue against God Himself? They run to the Mosaic Law. Now, not always, but often I found in my conversations that, you know, it's, it's the laws of slavery or the, the stoning of offenders and, and things like this that are, that are in, the moral, in, in the Mosaic law. And what are they getting wrong? Context. 
context, context, context. The interesting thing, though, is Christians often struggle with this same set of questions that the scoffers will use against us. They struggle with the appropriate context of the law, the the usefulness of the law. What is the context? It is in the midst of a covenant between God and Israel. Israel was God's specifically chosen people, the physical seed of Abraham that he was going to use as a showpiece of his glory to the nations around. And he would set them apart by a special covenant that made them different than all the other nations. And that covenant we call the Mosaic Covenant. This is the context of the Mosaic Law. So then, the question, of course, is, what about us, who are not part of the physical seed of Abraham? Do we gain many of the blessings that overflow from the blessings upon the physical seed of Abraham? Absolutely. Do many of those blessings resemble some of the same blessings that God gave to his chosen people in the Old Testament? Definitely. But we are not part of that covenant. And this is why the New Testament argues very clearly that we are not under the law. We do not operate under the Mosaic economy. This is clear in a number of places. Romans 6 argues it perhaps the most succinctly. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. Now, we said before that God's giving of the Mosaic law was a function of his goodness, a function of his grace. So it's not that that grace and law are divorced, that there was no grace in law, or that there's no law in grace. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the reality is we are under a new economy. We are in a different time and place in God's working with mankind. We are not under the law. And in fact, the entire argument of the New Testament is that Jesus has trumped the law. Jesus has overcome the law. Jesus has superseded the law. You say, great, then we get to do whatever we want, right? Not so fast. This is not lawlessness. And so Paul continues the argument in Romans 6, what, should we continue in sin because we're not under the law? Certainly not. Absolutely not. We're not, we're not saying that because we are not under the Mosaic Covenant that we are now lawless, but rather that through the law we have been instructed. What does Paul call the law? A, a, a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. Titus affirms this too in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that appeared The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. 
The appeal in Galatians 5 is to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be tangled again with the yoke of bondage. If you look at the entire context of Galatians, he is referring to the Old Testament law as, as a form of, of bondage that served a purpose, that had a value, we'll get to that in a minute, but, but we are not under the Mosaic law. This does not mean that we are lawless. This does not mean that we can do whatever we want. This does not mean that we are free to, to lie and steal and murder. It means simply that God is doing a new thing. God, through Jesus Christ, has brought us into an era of, of grace. We are not under the law. So what then is the usefulness of the law? You see, we're, there's, there's kind of two ditches here, right? That we can easily swerve from one ditch to the other ditch. And I think it helps us to consider the law with maybe some illustrations. My first car that I owned when, it, when I was a teenager was a hand-me-down from my grandfather. It was a Ford Escort with about 150,000 miles. There's a Ford, a four-speed on the floor, hatchback, and it was cool. Not really. <laughs> All right? I'm driving around this little Ford Escort, but it, I, I tell you what, it was great. I kept it clean. I, it got me from point A to point B, and boy, I was so glad to have that car. I love that little, little kind of burgundy red car because it was my first car. It was something special. It got me places, and I, I actually did my own work on it, got my hands all greasy trying to learn how to fix it. And Man, when it, when it threw a timing belt, those are side-mount engines. You have to, like, tear the whole engine out to fix the timing chain, and I did. Me and a few other guys with some help from people that knew what they were doing, and we tore that thing apart, put it all back together. All right, so it wasn't that cool a car. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll admit it. it. It wasn't that cool a car. And then I got the first car that I really loved. It was a Suzuki Sidekick. It was one of those little compact SUVs. Uh, this is a five-speed now. And it had four-wheel drive. Love that little car. And, sorry, it was better than the Ford Escort. It was way cooler. It was way more fun to drive. And had a five-disc CD changer. I mean, now we're, we're cool stuff. And uh, I love that car. You know what I didn't do after I got the sidekick? I didn't say, well, I want to go back and drive that Escort again. I, that, I missed the Escort. No, I had, I had a car that was, that was better. Now, did the, did the Ford Escort serve its purpose? Was it a, a good car? Yes. And was the fact that I love this new car even more somehow uh, a reflection that the, the old one was, was bad? No, no, the old one was good. It, was, it served its purpose. It, was, it was served the function that was intended. But now I had something better. Guess what the New Testament argues? Jesus is better. In fact, if you want a whole book that can be summarized that way, it's the book of Hebrews. The author is arguing, why would you go back to the old Ford Escort, right? 
the sidekick is better, right? He's saying, why would you go back to the Mosaic covenant? Jesus is better. And so when we talk about the law in terms of no longer being under the law, please don't fall into the ditch of thinking that that means somehow that the law was bad. No, the law did exactly what it was intended to do. Just because it was for Israel, just because it is now nullified, does not mean that it didn't serve a specific function. So think about it this way. Think about it in the context of Israel. Where was their first place to worship God formally? It was a tabernacle. That tabernacle was was wonderful because Shekinah glory rested there. They would wander in the wilderness for some time and they would stop the pillar of fire and, and the cloud would stop and they would set up the tabernacle and then God's glory would descend and God's people could meet with Him. What a wonderful thing. And then when they made their way into the promised land, David made the preparations for the temple that Solomon would build. All right, Solomon builds this temple. It's dedicated. And there's some guy standing over there and saying, well, wait a minute. What about all those tabernacle laws? We're just going to throw those out? I mean, right? We got to keep the tabernacle laws. No, of course not. Because they, the, the, the time for those had passed. The tabernacle had served its purpose. And now there was something better. And God's people probably didn't have any trouble adjusting. When we think about the Mosaic Law, it is not that it has no value. It is not that it is not good. It is that its time has passed. Its function has passed in specifically binding God's people to a law code. However, there still is usefulness, right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves that the, the, the law still serves a use. It still serves a function. As we look at the Mosaic Covenant, it still is valuable for us. So what then is the usefulness of the covenant? Well, all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. So not only is it inspired, but then it is instructive for us. All the Old Testament, including the law, continues to be profitable for us today. Even if we are not bound by the law code, the Mosaic Covenant still instructs us. And it can, for us, be a delight, just like the psalmist said it was a delight. And it must be used lawfully, rightfully, appropriately. Romans 15 says it this way, The things that were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comforts of the Scripture, might have hope. And so this law that is instructive, really, above all, must be something that is deep within our hearts. 
This is what Matthew 5 really gets at. Because the law is surpassed by something that is at the heart level. So understand, law in general, law and order, rules for society are necessary in order to have a functioning society. Society will implode on itself if there is no law. But limiting the activities of people externally isn't really enough. Important, yes. Necessary, yes. But it doesn't get to the heart. So what is more important than an external law code is an internal law that is written on our hearts. You see, we really can summarize the entirety of God's law. Jesus actually did it for us. Right? You remember this in Matthew 22? Those that want to argue with him, those that want to get him on a technicality, come to him and say, what's the most important law? He said, well, there's, there's two. And the second one hangs on the first one. What did he say? Love God, love others. That's the, that's the law in a nutshell. And of course, we know that this is reaffirmed in the New Testament. This is the timeless aspect of the law. Love God, love others. You shall love the Lord. We read it in the, in the Torah, right? We read it in, in our call to worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like to it, Jesus says. Love your neighbor as yourself. The outflow of loving God is loving others. And so really... Some would say we can summarize the whole law with the Ten Commandments, but we can actually distill it down even further than that by saying, love God, love others. That's an internal law. That's not one that all of the I's dotted and T's crossed will reach. It's a law that reaches into our hearts. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, all your soul, strength, and mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. And so the Old Testament law has been surpassed by an internal law. So God's specific expectations of his people have changed in some measure. Although those specific law codes have changed, the basic way we relate to God has not changed. Loving obedience. We are to love God. We are to love others. Loving obedience is the summary of God's expectation. That's true in the Old Testament. As God gave His chosen people Israel a covenant out of a function of his love and grace. And part of that covenant was a law code. So too in this day, God has given his people an expectation to love him and obey him, which brings us back to where we began. Just as God has given us commands to love, we ought to respond in love. He's given us these commands because, because He wants His glory and our good, and so we are to respond in love. I gave an illustration back at the beginning, right? You remember the illustration I gave? 
when we talked about you know this uh, this little clip from this book or this movie where the the father uh, says to the little daughter, you know, I'm smart and you're dumb and I'm big and you're little and I'm right and you're wrong and there's nothing you can do about it. And that some people look at God that way. The problem in that illustration is, of course, that the adult is, is weaponizing his position of authority, is weaponizing his, his uh, superiority for his own selfish gain. But God doesn't do that. The reality is He is wise and we are unwise. He is powerful and we are weak. He is right and we are wrong. But the difference is He loves us. And He tells us what to do for His glory and for our good. God gives His people commands for His glory and our good. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've been able to meditate together on what you heard.